0: To drive those cars, to be part of such an iconic, great team like Williams, it's an opportunity that I'm eternally grateful for. And I still remember so clearly the pressure before those sessions. When the helmet went on, I'd been given this great opportunity and there was an expectation that I would deliver.
1: In 2014, Susie Wolfe drove out of a garage at Silverstone and into the Formula One history books. She was driving for Williams in free practice for the British Grand Prix, the first woman to drive in an official F1 session for 22 years.
0: From being a little eight-year-old girl that that dreamed of racing cards, Formula One became my goal. I would have loved the opportunity to race in Formula One. I got very close. Today, coming into the track, young girls saying you're an inspiration and I want to work in motorsport because of you. And it really is very humbling for me to hear that because I never set out on a path to prove what a woman could do. I simply set out on my path and followed my passion.
1: I'm Tom Clarkson and welcome to F1 Beyond the Grid with Susie Wolfe. Susie's F1 sessions were the realization of her racing dreams which she can trace back to her childhood in a little town on the west coast of Scotland. Inspired and encouraged by her parents, Susie started racing at a very young age. The story of how she came to drive an F1 car is one of big risks and big life decisions, of bravery, determination and, above all, hard work. Through karting where she raced against Lewis Hamilton in the German Touring Car Championship, the DTM, and in her F1 runs for Williams, Susie showed great speed. With more opportunities, she could well have raced in Formula One. Today, she's pushing to create those opportunities for young women who want to work in motorsport. Susie now combines her racing experience with her business knowledge as CEO of the Venturi Formula E team. And of course, she lives the highs and lows of Formula One side-by-side with her husband, Toto, who runs Mercedes. You can't help but feel inspired listening to Susie. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Susie, it's lovely to have you on the show. Thank you for your time. Thank you for having me. Now, look, there are so many strings to your bow. But let's start by talking about 2014, British Grand Prix, German Grand Prix. You're in the Williams. Just how do you reflect on all that now?
0: I look back and it seems like a a completely different chapter in my life now, but one that I look back on fondly. I think I never made it to racing in Formula One, but just to drive those cars, to be part of such an iconic, great team like Williams, it's an opportunity that I'm eternally grateful for. And I still remember so clearly the pressure before those sessions, because when you're only doing an FP1, you want to show what you're capable of, but you're well aware that you cannot put a foot wrong because it could impact the the team's performance over the weekend. So I don't miss the pressure, but I certainly loved driving those Formula One cars. How much warning
1: did you get? Ahead of Well, Silverstone came first, didn't it? So when did you get the nod that it was going to happen?
0: I knew early on in the year and I have to say the team did a great job of preparing me well. I had a lot to, to prove um, to get the opportunity and I was very diligent in my preparation because I knew... An opportunity like that doesn't come across uh, very often and I had to grab it with both hands so I knew very early on which racetracks I would be given the opportunity and I knew exactly what I wanted to achieve.
1: Silverstone's not the easiest place to make your debut is it cops at 180 miles an hour which were the toughest sections just talk to us about driving that FW36 around there.
0: It seems just like yesterday. I knew I had two runs in the session on new tires, one of four laps, the next one of four laps. I did the first run and obviously I was lucky in that you do a lot of preparation in the simulator. So I knew where I had to be braking. I knew the speeds I had to be carrying. We came in after that first run. I looked at the data. I was nine tenths off, six tenths only in Cops Beckett's uh, alone, the high speed stuff. And someone in the team at the time, one of the data engineers, were looking at the data and I remember it so clearly he looked at me and said, you're just have to go, gonna have to go back out there and nail it through Cops and Beckett's. And I looked at him and nodded and said, okay, I know what I got to do. And I went back out and, and I tried, You know, I tried to then just carry more speed, but the difficulty as a test driver, you're not in the car very much. And the minute you jump in, you need to immediately find the limit. Uh, so it was a huge challenge, but, also so enjoyable. To drive an F1 car around the Silverstone Grand Prix circuit is something I will, will always treasure.
1: Let's talk about COPS, that 6 tenth. How much How much feedback do you get from the car and how much of it is just looking at the data and hoping that it does what it says on the data?
0: Well, I'm someone that's very data driven. So if I can see that it's possible, I have no problem to overcome, let's say, that internal fear and say, OK, this is possible flat. And the great thing about Formula One cars, the faster you go, the more downforce you get. So you've just got to get over that mental barrier. And I do remember my second run, I I approached Beckett's and I just said, I am not going to lift on the first part. I'm just going to keep the foot down. And I kept the foot down. The car went through the first part of the corner and I was like, OK, it's done. It's done. Uh, But it just is, is an incredible piece of machinery and what it's capable of in the first few laps you somehow can't even comprehend.
1: What did the engineers want from you in that free practice session? What was the brief as you went in?
0: Number one brief, do not under any circumstance crash the car, <laughs> 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 which, I, which I completely understand. But, you know, I had my supporters in the team also who were very keen for me to go out there and show what I could do. And I felt that. I felt a lot of support from within the team. And I obviously wanted to show what I could do. I didn't want to just be out there on track. I wanted to show that I was quick enough. So it was a balance between obviously pushing, but making sure I didn't crash the car. What was
1: Frank like to deal with in that situation? He always loved racing drivers, didn't he? His eyes lit up whenever he talked about racing. What did he say to you before and after?
0: I think after it was probably more just relief that the car was back in one piece and there wasn't any issues. Um, But I was also lucky that Claire was was playing quite a pivotal role in the team at the time and she was very supportive. um, But she also expected performance. I mean, in the end, it didn't matter if I was a girl or not. When the helmet went on, I'd been given this great opportunity and there was an expectation that I would deliver.
1: Right, let's fast forward two weeks to Hockenheim. Did you almost feel better prepared for that a because you'd had the prior experience but also because of DTM you'd done a lot of miles around the track
0: I'd done a lot more laps around Hockenheim than I'd done around Silverstone which is maybe funny coming from a British driver but that was my hunting ground in DTM and I know that track so well and I had been quite vocal in my support of me doing the FP1 at that track because I knew that it would would be a good track for me and there. I think for sure it was great to have had the British Grand Prix done and I just went into that session knowing exactly what I wanted to achieve.
1: And boy you did! I think you were what two tenths off Felipe Massa?
0: Yeah I would have liked to have been even closer um, but I ended up only two tenths off and and that was a session where I put a lap together that I felt was near to what I wanted it to be and it ended up only being two tenths off.
1: And when you look at the data Where did Massa have those two tenths on you around that lap?
0: I know exactly. (laughs) It was uh, heading into after the the Mercedes grandstand. I can't remember the corner number now. I think it's So the the right-hander after the Mercedes. The fast right-hander. It was the next turn 10 because there's the direct gravel trap with the barrier where actually Sebastian Vettel went off in the race. And I knew I had to carry a lot of speed in, but I also knew there was a risk that if I went in too hard. I was off into the gravel and probably into the tyre wall. And that's where I lost the 210s.
1: Amazing. And although you've got that DTM experience, does a Formula One car make it a completely different racetrack in a way?
0: Absolutely. The downforce that you have, the performance of the brakes, you know, your braking points are so much later in a Formula One car that it, that it is a different track, but it still was an advantage for me having known the track so well.
1: The FW36 was a good car. Massa was on pole in Austria that year. Lots of podiums.
0: Those were some great, great races for, for Williams in that year. The car was strong. I mean, I don't have a comparison to tell you it was better or worse than another Formula One car I'd driven. But that car, it looked great in the Martini colours. It had the strong Mercedes powertrain in and it, it did some great podiums that year.
1: Well, Valtteri finished second in both of the races where you did the FP1s. I attribute that to you and your your preparation for, the, for, for Valtteri.
0: You said that, not me, <laughs> but you know, I'll take it. I'll take it. Now, Susie, I'm keen
1: to know more about your driving style. How did you drive a car? How did you like to set it up? Did you like a bit more understeer, oversteer? What could you deal with more easily?
0: I hated understeer. I always loved to have a really strong front, even if it was too pointy, even if it made my rear a bit snappy. Um, I was someone that just did not like understeer. That's interesting, isn't it? Who oh, is
1: not it is it? Max Verstappen, I think, can deal. One of the reasons he, everyone says, oh, he can deal with the Red Bull a little bit easier than other people is because he can deal with a, a loose rear end, as could Michael Schumacher back in the day. So I would say that puts you in a in a category of drivers that's, well, there's more people that deal with understeer. I feel. cool Coulthard's of this world example. He, he always used to say, I like a little bit of understeer, or of the two.
0: But I'm not sure, Tom, that I'm comfortable with you comparing me to Max Verstappen, because <laughs> if I look back on my career, I'm incredibly proud of what I achieved. And I had a lot of tenacity and determination, but I wasn't one of the greats. Definitely not. I always lacked that couple of tents that would have moved me from a mid-pack to a front-pack. I had some difficult years in DTM. Um, I think part of that was also the infrastructure where they had A team and B team. But I certainly, I think, did the best that I could with the talent I had, but I wasn't at the at the very top of the game. But
1: what about if you'd had more experience? I mean, how did you feel after those two runs? Hungry for more, I would imagine.
0: Absolutely hungry for more, without a doubt. You know, from, from being a little eight-year-old girl that, that dreamed of racing cards... And then at the age of 13, going to watch a Formula 3 race and suddenly realizing, wow, you can make a career out of this. You can be a racing driver and and make it to Formula 1. And Formula 1 became my goal. And for such a big part of my life, every day I woke up, it was all focused on trying to get to Formula 1. I would have loved the opportunity to race in Formula 1. I got very close. Um, But on the other side, I, I also recognized that I didn't have that Talent that the very top drivers in Formula One have. Did you
1: have conversations with Williams and other teams about a race seat?
0: Unfortunately, there there simply wasn't the opportunity. While I was at Williams, there was Felipe um, and there was Valtteri, and there was no question that 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 driver lineup was was going to be changed. And at the time, to get an opportunity in another team, it would have been a team at the very back. I was very very clear with myself that I wouldn't pay a lot of money to do a race at the back of the, the grid because that wasn't what my what my ambition was. And that's why in, in, a, in a way, the decision to stop in 2015 was an easy one because the journey had come to its natural end. I had done three years as a test driver. I knew every year that I stayed on the sidelines as a test driver, it was more unlikely that I would come back into a race seat because I'd simply been out of the, the game for too long. And that's why it it was an easy decision in the end. Did you feel like a trailblazer? No, I've I've never felt like a trailblazer. I've simply felt like a girl that was chasing her dream. And and I'm honestly humbled to hear that that's inspired so many. And even today, coming into the track, young girls saying you're an inspiration, and I, I want to work in motorsport because of you. And it 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 really is 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 very humbling for me to hear that because I never set out on a path to prove what a woman could do. I simply set out on, on my path and followed my passion.
1: When people say to you, why aren't there any female drivers racing in Formula One at the minute? Because there hasn't been anyone since you in 2014. Tatiana Caldron tested a Sauber uh, a couple of years ago, but what is your answer to that?
0: I've spoken so much about women in motorsport and and this particular topic. Um, that I sometimes feel that I've I've got nothing more to say, but I've I've obviously said for me it's it's about the, the talent pool. It's a numbers game. If you've only got a handful of little girls racing at top level European karting, it's very unlikely that one of them is going to make it to the very pinnacle of the sport. Um, but if you've got more girls racing, the talent pool naturally becomes bigger, and the more chance you have of of a girl making it to the very top and I think the second part is also about inspiration. You've got to see it to believe it. And unfortunately, right now, we don't have a female driver in Formula One that can inspire the next generation. But I do believe on the positive side, there are a lot of very talented women in the sport, maybe off track more than on track right now. And they are proving to be inspirations. And I've certainly seen it in my time in the sport that slowly but surely, we're making progress.
1: So we need to get, more young girls coming into karting increase the pool in karting and then we're more likely to end up with a a female racing in Formula One is that what you're saying?
0: Yes I think you've got to increase the numbers of participation for the very talented to reach the very top but in all of the work that I've done um, I'm also quite passionate about increasing the overall environment of motorsport because when you come to a Formula One race there's 20 drivers on the grid but you'll know better than me, the numbers, there must be four, five, six thousand people between the teams and the Formula One infrastructure and the, the infrastructure at the racetrack involved in putting the event on. And I think we have a, a situation where motorsport has been seen as something very male-dominated and the more women we can get into the environment, um, the more diverse the sport will be and that's got to be a positive for the long term.
1: Let's go back to Oban, on the west coast of Scotland, all right, <laughs> Susie? So. Great
0: place. It's a great place for anyone that hasn't been there.
1: Well, it's a popular holiday resort, isn't it, for, for cycling, walking, scuba diving. Where did your desire for motorsport come from?
0: Well, I think it's an unlikely to, backdrop. It's an unlikely backdrop until you know my family story. My mum met my dad when she went to buy her first motorbike out of his shop, and they still run that same shop nearly 40 years later. My dad had a team in Isle of Man TT. Uh, He was a a very keen racer. My mum sometimes raced bikes. Her her father, so my grandfather, was quite a famous motocross rider in the 1950s. And I got a little bike for my second birthday, a little three-wheeler quad. And I was naturally one of these little girls that I, I loved speed. I loved adrenaline. I loved competition. So those character traits naturally let's say fitted the sport and for my eighth birthday I got a go-kart. People presumed that I jumped in that little go-kart and was a natural talent but I most definitely wasn't. I remember the first time we went out on track at Lark Hall, a circuit just outside Glasgow and I was out on track and the cars were, carts were flying past me much quicker and they were even kind of bumping me as they went past and I came back into the pits and I said to my dad I really don't like that out there. He said no problem toots that was his nickname for me we got two options now we put the cart back in the truck and we head home or you go back out there you try and go faster and when they hit you or bump you you're going to bump them back twice as hard so i think you can guess which option I, <laughs> I went for i went back out there and and i loved the challenge and before long i was racing in the scottish championships in the british championships and i qualified for the european championships and it was still only a hobby and I, I'm very thankful to my parents when I look back because I have an older brother, but I never remember thinking I was doing something unusual for a girl. My brother raced, so we, we kind of toured around as a family, but my parents never gave me the impression I was doing something unusual for a girl. And at 13, they took me to watch a, a Formula 3 race at Donington Park. Jackie Stewart had his team, Jensen Button won on that day, and, and that's when it really the idea was born in my head that I wanted to be a racing driver and and that's when really everything changed because it went from being just a hobby to something that I became very determined and focused on.
1: Can we just tidy up what was obviously a big family moot point who was quicker you you or your brother?
0: Depends who you ask (laughs) I'll say I was quicker he'll say he was quicker (laughs) There were a couple of situations where we we drove home in silence because we'd hit each other out on track. And I remember once my dad saying, please, kids, the race is over. Just talk to each other. But it was a good couple of days before we even muttered a word to each other because we were both so upset.
1: I'm interested that it was a go-kart and not a motorbike that that your parents gave you.
0: My dad always said his little girl could race on four wheels, but not two. And I'm, I'm glad about that. Now he lost one of his very dear friends in, in the Isle of Man TT. He's he's a huge fan of of motorbikes and obviously MotoGP and and the TT still. But he felt four wheels were were safer, and, and I think he's right there.
1: Did you travel with him to the Isle of Man? Have you have you watched the racing there? Did you ever see Mum race?
0: I remember going to Isle of Man TT. The camping. I remember spending a lot of time at Knock Hill. That's where I tried a cart for the first time. My dad was racing my mum sometimes too, and I would be badgering my dad. It was five pounds for 15 minutes and he never could give us enough five pounds. We always came back asking for more, um, but those were, were great memories and were a lot of fun as a family.
1: Now in 2000, um, you were named the top female carter, I think in the world at the time. You were racing some real household names now, Lewis Hamilton was that in karting or was that in single seaters? Or was that both?
0: That was in in that year when I was was named as top female. We, we were at the world championships were in Portugal. Kubica was on on pole. It was Lewis. Um, there was some quite a lot of names now Nico um, that were in that race, and yeah, I finished fifteenth overall, which obviously I was I was quite proud of, but I wasn't on the podium, and they called my name over the tannoy, saying, come to the podium ceremony, come to the podium ceremony. And I remember I was in a team with Lotta Helberg and the Gillard Carts, and we looked at each other thinking, oh no, I hope I'm not in trouble or going to be disqualified for some reason. We ran to the podium ceremony and I was called up on stage to receive the award for top female in the world. And I remember looking at Lotta and suddenly thinking to myself, I'm not here to be the top female. And then I suddenly thought, actually, are there actually... Any other girls in the competition and I thought okay maybe I've seen two others but I remember feeling very embarrassed in that moment that I had been singled out as a top female because I was there to try and win the race not to be the top female um, and I think at that time you know I was 18 it was the first realization for me that that I was seen as different that this was going to be different for me because I was seen as different and i think you know the following year i tried to move into single seaters and that's when the media attention really picked up on on me being a girl and i've said this many times but i've only ever done one interview in my whole career where i wasn't asked about my gender and it became such a big topic of my career
1: what was life like as a woman in karting
0: it's something i'm asked often and and it's quite hard for me to answer because, obviously, I only have my own experience. If I look back, yes, there were some very, very tough moments um, where I felt very lonely because I was definitely treated differently.
1: And while you were karting and racing the likes of, of Lewis and Paul de Resta, were you also doing other sports?
0: No, at the age of, of 12, I was in the school swim team and I was in the, the downhill ski team. Quite unusual to think <laughs> that Scotland had its own ski team, but we did. We do, get, we do get skiing sometimes in Scotland. And I remember it being very hectic all the time to the point that my parents said, look, we're not going to do all three sports well. You've got to pick which one you really want to concentrate on. And it wasn't even a decision for me. It was clear that I, I wanted to focus on karting.
1: You've got a son now, Jack. Do you think it's unusual that you had such a clear idea what you wanted to do from such a young age when you see your son now?
0: I look back and I'm, I said it before, I'm just so thankful to my parents because they made it possible, but they never pushed me too hard. But they opened my eyes to possibilities. You know, I come from a very small town in the west coast of Scotland and through sport, I've managed to travel the world and, and I'm so grateful for that but I do think that karting was only ever a hobby up until I got taken to that Formula 3 race and for sure they probably took me there thinking we need to understand if if this is really what Susie wants to do or, or whether it's just going to stay as a hobby for us but I was very driven I am very driven um, and that's sometimes you know not what you hear a woman saying but I'm ambitious, I'm driven and I had set my my goal, I wanted to make it to Formula One and I for sure sacrificed a lot, but for me it wasn't a sacrifice because I was doing what I loved and, and I enjoyed, I wouldn't say all of it. There were very, very tough moments along the way, but I'm very grateful to have done this sport for so long and, and to still be involved in this sport. Let's
1: talk about the step into single seaters and particularly um, how much was your single seater career Derailed by an ankle injury?
0: I think the ankle injury definitely derailed me, but actually not having enough sponsorship was, was the bigger issue because I had done two and a half years of, of Formula Renault, uh, which, which we had funded partly through the family and partly through sponsors. And I had been nominated for British Young Driver of the Year, which again, it was the first time a female had been nominated. So I got a lot of attention I attempted to do a year of Formula 3, I did two races and I broke my ankle, I lost the place in my seat, I lost the sponsor but eight months later I was testing a Mercedes Benz German touring car and they say what's for you won't go by you in life and I'm definitely incredibly lucky that I got the opportunity to test for Mercedes but it was only ever supposed to be one, one season. Um, but I grabbed the opportunity. I refused to let them make my car lighter. Maybe you regret that sometimes now. That would have been a, a big helping hand. Uh, but I absolutely felt that I had to go in and, and race on my own merit and not be given a lighter car simply because I was a female. So I think that single-mindedness that I had was a big part of me, you know, making it into Formula One.
1: I don't know the story of how you broke your ankle.
0: Unfortunately, it wasn't a glamorous high-speed accident. I was out running in Scotland in the winter and I slipped on ice. Ow. Ouch.
1: <laughs> Poor you. And how long did it take for you to be able to start running again?
0: Running again a long time. I remember it being a real struggle to get my my medical done to get my race license back because the doctor said you have to stand on the broken ankle, which I just about managed to do through the pain and then he said okay, now you need to jump for me. I thought, "Oh my goodness." So I just gritted my teeth and jumped and thought, is that enough? Can I, can I drive now? Can I get my license? Um, but it was, it was a very tough time in my, my career because i had left university to focus on being a racing driver. I was struggling to pay the rent at the end of every month. I obviously lost my seat in Formula 3. But I'm a big believer in, in gut feelings and something told me just keep going. What were you
1: reading at uni?
0: International business.
1: Was it a clear, easy decision for you to give that up? And and how did the family react to that?
0: I remember sitting in the the economics lecture. I just started the second year and I had come back from a test. And I suddenly had this realization of what am I doing here? I'm a sheep that's following the flock. I'm sitting here because everyone tells me I should be sitting here. I want to be a racing driver. I want to be a successful racing driver. So I walked out of the economics hall called home and, and luckily it was my dad that answered and not my mum and I said I want to leave and he said okay I'll pick you up in the morning and by that time you've got to have a plan. So one week later I had a little golf TDI full of my worldly belongings. I drove from Oban down to Silverstone, got the local paper, rented the room in a, in a little old lady's house, got a job as a marshal at Silverstone and that was it. I was fully focused on my dream of trying to make it in racing.
1: So that was the plan. <laughs> so it's honestly, if mum had answered the phone. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, thankfully, uh, I got invited back to Edinburgh University for an honorary degree. So my mum finally got my graduation picture to put on the kitchen wall. <laughs> good- but I do think my, my parents had reservations, but they supported me and, and I'll always be thankful for that.
1: Just out of interest, we're going to come on to life now as, uh, you know, Venturi, Formula E, boss, etc. But do you think that degree would have helped you in your life now?
0: No, I think life experience counts for a lot more. And I, when I jumped into my role as team principal, I had absolutely a lot to learn and I was out of my depth, but I survived And, and I'm a great believer in pushing yourself out of your comfort zone. I think studying and I'm sorry for all the parents who are listening to this that are trying to tell their children that they've got to go to university and get a degree I think if university buys you time to figure out what you want to do but I don't think it's everything Um, and you know I'm now trying to learn French I'm doing some online Harvard courses to to fill in the gaps where I feel that I need to have more knowledge but I say grab opportunities and go for them don't feel like you're it's not possible unless you have a university degree. And, and there was also an element of the financial side, you know, to to go and study for another four years and be later into the workforce is also quite a commitment and the competition is high. So I think every case is, is different. Every individual has to do what's right for them. But for me, I don't regret for one second leaving university and, and chasing my dream.
1: Are you academic? Were you academic?
0: I'm very academic just because I'm, purely very competitive I was uh, the second highest in my year in the last year of school not because I was the second brightest but because I just put the work in because I wanted to be the best but I'm I would say I'm I'm academic in that I I like reading I like learning I'm always open uh, to learning new things and and being more knowledgeable.
1: Susie talk us through the move to Germany to the German touring car championship the DTM championship how much of an upheaval was that? How difficult were those early years?
0: If I look back, it was, it was a big change moving to, to Switzerland. I did the first race and I'd done quite well. I finished in the top 10 and, and Norbert Haug, my boss at the time, the Mercedes-Benz motorsport boss, he took me to the side after the race and, and bearing in mind I was on a one-year contract, he said, you've got the chance of a, of a good future, future with us, but I give you one tip, learn German and learn it fast. And within three months, I had learned German because my my livelihood depended on it. But for sure, it was tough as, as a young girl moving to a, a German-speaking country and being in a very tough environment, which was DTM. But I never once felt that I couldn't handle it. I was treated very well by Mercedes-Benz. And it's, it's obviously a relationship that's gone on over um, a lot of years now. But there were also great years, the traveling that we got to do and representing you know, one of the greatest automotive brands in the world, out on track and, and off track too, was, was a real honour. Homesick? Not at all. No, I'm a great believer in uh, moving to a different country, experiencing another culture. It, it makes you grow so much as a person. And I'm incredibly lucky that my parents came to watch me racing. So I never felt that I was detached from home. Um, on the contrary, I felt that it was, was great for my self-development.
1: And while racing the touring cars, was Formula One still the goal?
0: No, I. the goal was to make a living out of being a racing driver. I was, was very proud to race in the German touring cars, proud to be a Mercedes-Benz driver. And it only really after five years of, of relative little success in, in German touring cars that I started to think for my own mental well-being, I had to search for a different challenge. I was earning great money, I was in a great environment, but... The success on track wasn't coming, and and again, it was my gut feeling that started to say, "You've you've got to look for another challenge." Now you've you've and in some ways, I needed some kind of success to validate um, my belief that I was that I was a, a fast racing driver. And in DTM, there was flashes of let's say performance, but it was generally a tough tough time. Um, and there were some moments where I remember being mentally broken and just thinking, okay, how much how much more of this can I survive?
1: Mentally broken, just the lack of success, the frustration. Is that what you found so difficult?
0: So difficult the the non-performance on track and the harder I tried because I've all I'd always believed that if you work hard enough you can achieve what you want to achieve. And suddenly I was putting all my effort in and, and when I look back in hindsight I was putting too much effort in. I was completely you know, um, over overdriving, overdriving and overdetermined um, to prove myself, and I was then just in a in a vicious negative cycle.
1: How helpful were Mercedes in getting you to Williams and making the switch?
0: They weren't helpful um, because they they didn't need to be helpful in that area. In at the beginning of two thousand twelve, uh, in, in May, I went to see Norbert Haug and, and I told him this would be my last season of DTM, and there was shock for them because obviously I was in a in a comfortable position I was like I said earning great money but I knew my time had come to an end and at that moment he said well, well what are you going to do and I said I don't know I don't know what I'm going to do but I just know I can't do this anymore and I'm a great believer that the next door doesn't open until you've closed the the door that you're currently the room that you're currently in and I knew I had to stop DTM to figure out what I was going to do next and then, of course, the, the opportunity arose with Williams, but it was only ever supposed to be 20 laps around Silverstone because it was my dream to drive a Formula One car. It was never supposed to be anything more than that. Um, but, of course, it it turned into a lot more than that. And when I look back, I was so brave to think that I was just going to stop DTM without knowing what I was going to do next. But my gut feeling said it's it's time to move on.
1: Did you pick up the phone to Frank? How How did it work?
0: It all happened because... Obviously, at the time in DTM, my teammates were were David Coulthard, were Ralph Schumacher, who had been ex-Williams drivers. And it was actually because Toto joined Williams as an investor. And Toto came back from the first board meeting and said, Frank kept asking me about you, that he couldn't believe that there was a girl racing. Um, because in his day, obviously, the women were... In the paddock, making the sandwiches and the tea, but certainly not in the in the car. And I found the funny the story funny, but didn't think any more of it. And and then we heard that Frank was coming to the the DTM race at Brands Hatch to watch. And to watch you. I don't think just to watch me. I think he was interested, obviously, to see this girl that was racing, but interested also um, to to watch the DTM and and see the racing. And. He, I made it clear that um, obviously it was my goal to drive a Formula One car one day and, and he said, you're going to drive my car. I'm going to give you a, the chance to drive my car. And and that was it. It was set then for the winter that I would do 20 laps. I woke up on the day and saw that it had been raining and thought, oh, no, it's going to be wet. Um, but again, the team had done a great job of, of getting me ready for driving the car and the test went really well and, and I probably did better than they expected and then the idea came that okay you're going to join the team in a development driver capacity and and we invented that that term development driver now all, all a lot of other teams have development drivers and I think it's a great way to to kind of nurture young talent I wasn't that young at the time but that really started the Formula One journey.
1: I remember there being so much attention around you um, at the time, particularly, obviously, 2014, which we've already talked about. How have you dealt with fame? How d- difficult do you find that?
0: I can't answer that question because I don't think I have fame. I don't at all feel famous. I, I do what I do. I obviously get recognition um, for what I achieved in the past. And if I walk into a paddock, but otherwise, I lead a, a completely normal life. I
1: look at drive to survive. that will have created yet more interest in Susie Wolfe as well, the latest series.
0: Maybe created more interest, but it, in the end, it's it's following what we do as, as our, let's say, jobs, as our careers. And I'm incredibly lucky to be on the journey together with Toto. Um, he's had an incredible run in Formula One and I'm his biggest supporter, without a doubt. And we are very grateful um, to be able to do what we do and to be part of such a great team. But we have our feet firmly on the ground. And, and in the end, it's, it's a time of our lives where we're riding a, a huge Formula One wave, um, but we won't be racing forever. And that's why we're enjoying it while we can. And, and I'm obviously coming from a motorsport background. I love being at the racing and I love what he does and I love being part of the team. Um, and that makes it much easier. It, it's really a lifestyle for our family.
1: How did you find the whole drive to survive experience being interviewed? you like the end product? Because even now it's still being discussed with the drivers. Max Verstappen is quite outspoken about it, saying that he doesn't want to be part of it. What are your thoughts on it?
0: I think, first of all, we, we need to be respectful of the fact that it's done a great, great thing for Formula One in that it's opened Formula One up to a wider audience. I certainly see so many more young girls and women interested in the sport because of Drive to Survive. I think in formerly... The sport was seen as something very technologically driven, um, whereas now there's this element of there being more human, uh, human element to Formula One, which, which is great because there are characters and the drivers wear a helmet, so people don't get to see them a lot. Whereas in Drive to Survive, you see the challenges of, of being a Formula One driver. You see the pressure um, that these guys are under. So I think there's far more positives to come out of Drive to Survive, then there are negatives. I can, let's say, understand the frustrations from certain people that the narrative had been spun in a different way. But in the end, we've got to be thankful as a whole that Drive to Survive has had a positive impact on the sport.
1: Yeah, it's definitely shed a light on a different side of the sport, isn't it? What about Lewis? You've known him for so long. Is he the same guy now that he was when you were karting together all those years ago?
0: He absolutely is. And I have no reservations in saying that. You know, just two days ago, we were reminiscing about something that had happened in the karting days that we had remembered. And if I haven't seen him for a while, the first thing he does is ask me how my parents are, John and Sally. And we reminisce a lot. Um, I watched some of the races together with Anthony, his dad. And he's absolutely um, the same. But I just have so much admiration and respect for Lewis, what he's achieved, how he manages his life to be the best possible racing driver um, that he can be. And for me, which is incredible to watch is just how deep he can dig in moments of pressure. And I didn't have that uh, to that extent as a racing driver, but he has an incredible ability in the car and out of the car.
1: And would you say an incredible ability to move on as well? I'm referring to Abu Dhabi in the disappointment last year.
0: You know, I'm inspired by Lewis as a racing driver, but also as a human being. And, and obviously I see some of the negative comments around what he does and um, how vocal he is in different areas. But you know what? It takes guts to be different. And I know that to a lesser extent because I was different always in the paddock. And it's easy to be the same as everyone else. It's easy just to rock up, race, leave and not worry. But he has the guts to be different, to stand up and to use his platform for other causes. And I think that's also got to be commended um, because the easier route is to do nothing. I think where he's, where he's at now and the determination he has and his ability off track um, to do what he does. And like you said, to move on. It takes a a lot of strength to move on, but he has moved on and the whole team has moved on.
1: Let's talk a little more about life after racing for you. You retired in 2015 and and Dare to be Different was one of your, is it fair to say, one of your first ventures after racing? What was the motivation to start that? And of course, it's it's now morphed into the FIA's Girls on Track. Just tell us about why you set that up.
0: It was the first thing I did and it was clear that I was going to do something. I wanted to give something back to the sport that had given me so much. And I wanted to pass the baton on to the next generation. I wanted them to learn from my mistakes, but also from my experience. And I wanted to inspire the next generation because I'd spoken so much about being a woman in motorsport um, that I felt that together with Motorsport UK, we could do something um, to change the narrative. And I also felt... There are so many people within the sport that say we'd love to see more diversity, but nobody actually does anything. And in the end, actions speak much louder than words. And that's why I felt compelled to do something. And obviously it was about increasing participation, increasing the talent pool. Um, and it, I knew it would never have success overnight. It's, it's a long-term project. And I'm very proud when I see what the FIA Girls on Track um, is achieving. And I have so many nice stories and messages from from young women and girls who have been inspired by either attending one of our events or let's say being inspired by something they read online. And that for me is what gives me huge satisfaction and compels me to want to do even more.
1: And are you involved in the Hamilton Commission as well?
0: Not right now because I'm quite busy running a Formula E team. Um, But let's see what the future holds. I'm someone that, that definitely believes in giving back and it's an area where... I definitely want to do more in the future. So, yeah, watch this space.
1: Right. Come on then. Susie Wolfe, team principal, team boss. What's the correct terminology? Are you both?
0: (laughs) No, I (laughs) stepped, let's say, up from team principal because the travel was was quite challenging in my family dynamic of being a wife and a mother. So I'm now the, the CEO of the team, which means I don't need to attend all the races, but most of them.
1: How have you found the step into management? Is it easier than driving?
0: I'm incredibly lucky that I got to watch Toto over so many years um, running, running his team and that was a huge inspiration uh, for me to believe that I could do it and he was very supportive when the opportunity came up he said go for it you've, you've got it in you you've just got to believe in yourself and there were some moments at the beginning where you know the team that I joined was at the back of the grid there was a lot of issues in the team and, and at times I thought what have I taken on here I've got a mountain to climb to get to where we need to be but Fast forward three years, we're currently leading both championships in Formula E and we finished Vice World Champions last season. So it's been an incredible journey and I've, I've had the privilege of working with some really, really great people. But to answer your question, there was a lot to learn. I was in, in the deep end, but I I believed I could do it. What's been the hardest thing to get used to? I think there's areas of the business where... I had to learn a lot. Uh, you know, there was there was a pile of contracts I had to work through, and um, some which I had to get us as, as out of, and some which I had to um, to correct because they'd been been done in the wrong way. So there was areas of the business, and then on the financial side. Now, obviously, we have a financial cost cap also in Formula E, and, and that takes a huge amount of learning if you've never run a business before to understand how to put the right structure in place and and how to make sure you're managing the team for not just short-term success but medium to long-term success but one area I was was very focused on initially is just getting the right people in the right positions and bringing the right energy into the team
1: You say you learnt a lot from Toto what kind of stuff?
0: Where to start? Um, I have a different management style to Toto because I'm a different character than Toto and I don't try to copy what he does um, but I am definitely inspired from how he runs the organisation he's very authentic he's very very good in his communication um, and that's where he's got a lot of empathy for the people he works with and he surrounds himself by very talented people he's not scared to be challenged and he wants bright people around him that do challenge him and i think that's something which which i definitely learned from having watched him over so many years and it's one thing trying to be successful as a team and get to the front but it's another thing trying to maintain that success and they obviously had a huge challenge in that they'd won title after title and how do you keep a group of individuals together and motivated and that's been one of his great challenges but I'm just inspired watching him what he does and and I learn something every day and I never stop learning and I hope I never stop learning
1: and you do beat him in Formula E occasionally huh (laughs) (laughs) that must feel very sweet
0: I'm in the end, you know, there's 24 cars out there and we as a team have the Mercedes-Benz power unit in our car and it's, it's, they've done a fantastic job. So I don't focus on that rivalry. I'm very proud of him. I want him to be successful. He wants me to be successful. Um, but of course, I'm in it to win it um, and they are, they're a competitor. But there's a good relationship. And I think to be successful, you need to focus on your own performance. You don't need to worry about the competition. You just need to focus on doing the best you can do. And if that's enough to win, great. And if it's not, how are you going to turn it around? And how are you going to make your organisation and your team better? Can you
1: imagine taking a management role within Formula One?
0: No, I I can't imagine working for my husband. I don't think no, that No, I don't be...
1: necessarily mean <laughs> with him. Just within Formula One, either the organisation or another team, perhaps Williams?
0: No, I think... Being Toto's wife obviously means that I'm very aligned to the Mercedes team. Uh, Like I said, I wouldn't work for Toto, but I also wouldn't want to work for a competitor. Um, My heart is is with the Mercedes Formula One team. And I think there'd obviously be reservations within individuals in the paddock if I rocked up in in some kind of other function. So I don't see my future being in Formula One.
1: How much do you live the highs and lows of the Mercedes team. Then, do you know when to tread carefully around Toto?
0: Absolutely, <laughs> <laughs> I know when to pick my battles. <laughs> I think also because I've I've been in the sport so long, I know the challenges he's facing, so I I can be very understanding if he's if he's got to stay at the office late or head off to a meeting and we don't see each other for a long time. But, and I also know what it feels like when you're under that amount of pressure. And Toto sometimes has an incredible ability to just soak up pressure. And I get nervous listening sometimes, but he just keeps soaking up the pressure, keeps soaking up the pressure and and shields the team sometimes from the amount of pressure that's, let's say, coming in their direction. But I think we, we make a good team. For sure, we make a good team because he, in the same respect, is is hugely supportive of me and what my ambitions are.
1: Do you sometimes give the driver's perspective on a situation for him?
0: Definitely. We sometimes discuss decisions that he has to make I sometimes have my own opinion he has his own opinion obviously he's got great people in the team that also um, give them their opinion Um, but we sometimes have heated discussions on on what we think has happened and he's incredibly lucky in that he's been in a car he's been a driver he has been a very successful businessman before he even entered Formula One so he has a lot of knowledge in all the different areas. So even when I have an opinion in terms of what it's like from the driver's perspective, he immediately gets it. Um, you know, sometimes you hear people say random things, you know, oh, well, he just needs to find two tents. You know, surely the driver can just, you know, just, just go out and go faster. No, you know, two tents is a lot in a race car, and you're already on the limit. So he has a, you know, a great understanding of all the different elements. Of, of what it takes to be successful.
1: Ah, the magic of two tenths. I always think two tenths can be translated anyway, can't it? If, if a driver could be only two tenths from Lewis Hamilton, or, oh my goodness, he's two tenths off. It Statistics, can be either, eh?
0: either a huge number yeah. or a very small number.
1: <laughs> yeah. Now, who's quicker, you or Toto?
0: Tom, how can you even ask that question? <laughs> I, ma- I made a career out of being a racing driver. I have to be quicker than Toto. Sure.
1: Sure. Um, And we've seen the video as well,
0: huh? Um, I have nothing to prove, by the way, anymore. So I'm fine jumping in a car and not having to show the world how good I am. But I would like to think I'm still quicker. Just
1: a little bit of off-track stuff. How do you relax? Is it all motor racing, your life, your chat? Do you have time for anything else?
0: We definitely do. And and thankfully, my marriage is not just all about motorsport, because then we would be in in quite a bad place. Um, We're just... I think, completely normal. We enjoy spending time together as a family. I'm terrible in the kitchen, so if we want to eat nice food, we have to go out (laughs) to eat nice food. Uh, But we enjoy traveling, experiencing different cultures and different environments, doing sport together. It can sometimes get very competitive, but we generally have found quite a good balance now after 10 years of marriage. But I think fundamentally, we we just focus on on being content and happy. And, And if there's one thing, that the whole pandemic taught us happiness comes from the the simple things in life. It's not about the the big grand gestures or the big moments. It's the small daily things that you experience together, that you can do together. um, And when you're together as a family that actually bring the most joy.
1: Something you said a little bit earlier about riding this Formula One wave together. I love that analogy. But when the wave breaks and runs in towards the shore. Do you see yourself still in motorsport in five, 10, 15 years' time?
0: Motorsport is where my life is right now. And, and when I talk of riding that wave, you know, we've won the World Championship eight times. And I've certainly felt over the, the last couple of seasons that there's, let's say, a gathering momentum of people saying, they've got to stop now, you know, it, it's too much. And I understand that. I think in any sport, you don't want to see the same person winning all the time. So I definitely have um, an understanding for for that perspective. But in the end, we're in it and we're always going to try and do the best we can. Um, I see Toto and myself always being involved in the Formula One team. Obviously, there's a shareholding in the team, uh, but it's something we are hugely passionate about. So I don't ever see us just leaving. Um, Absolutely not. Like Toto said many times, everyone's got their shelf life um, and you've got to also know when your time's up and move on and, and let the next generation through. And that's something we discuss quite often. But right now, you know, we've, we've not got a car that's quick enough this season. We love the challenge of getting back there and we're still 100% focused.
1: Well, look, we're talking on the eve of the Saudi Arabian Grand Prix qualifying yesterday. Didn't go well for Lewis. How confident are you guys? Let's just talk shop properly about the car at the minute. How confident are you guys of of getting it sorted in time to challenge for the world championship this year?
0: It's a very good question, and I'm not in the engineering team, um, but obviously I I follow from from a little distance. Uh, in the end, we've come out with a car that's not quick enough. But I think we all know that the car's got a lot of potential in it. We've just got to unlock that potential and that's no easy feat with the with the limited testing that you now have. I mean, literally every race is like a test. But I absolutely believe in the organization. I believe in the people. These people have won eight world titles. They don't suddenly get it wrong or not know what to do. You've got the resource in place for it to be successful. And you've got the greatest driver of all time in one car and a huge, huge young talent in the other car. So, I think the ingredients are there, but this sport is brutal. If you have one area lacking, uh, you're going to pay the price. And right now we've got more than one area lacking and we need to get on top of the problems. And the question will be how quickly we can get on top of the problems and damage limitation. You know, when we're not on where we need to be in fighting at the front, how quickly or let's see how little damage can be done and how quickly um, can we recover?
1: I know a lot of people listening to this will be hoping that you manage to do that. And Susie, I just wanted to end by, you know, we came in talking about your Formula One experiences with Williams. And my last question is simply about the future for a talented female driver. Do you think that person has a better chance of getting a race seat in F1 today than just five years ago?
0: Yes. And I'm very very pleased that I can see yes. But I do believe because of the shift in society where diversity and inclusion has become a much bigger topic, it's not something that people can shy away from anymore. I think there's a real willingness to now see a female become successful on track. We've got to also remember that Formula One is the pinnacle of the sport. It won't happen overnight, but I do believe for all the young girls out there who are racing, keep going because... Aside from Formula One, there's so many opportunities out there now, much more than before. And if you are good enough, you will find an opportunity. Focus on the performance because performance is power.
1: Susie, you're an inspiration. Thank you very much for your time.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: I could listen to Susie all day. Her message is clear work hard, follow your passions, and anything is possible. She's also a great storyteller and I loved hearing her talk about what it was like to drive for Williams, work with Frank Williams and Claire Williams, and of course, try to nail cops at 190 miles an hour. Susie, thank you very much for your time and keep riding that wave. Before we go, thanks to all of you who got in touch about last week's episode with Pat Fry. As much as we love hearing from the drivers, you guys love also to hear from the engineers. Here are just a few of the messages that you sent in. Carrie wrote in with this. No way. Back when I lived in Italy, Pat's son and I went to school together and we were best friends. Then we moved away and he changed from Ferrari to Renault. Crazy to see this. It's a very small world, Carrie, and thanks for getting in touch. How about this one from Cleta Spuckler, who said it's classic Briatore, what he did after Brundle ran out of fuel just before the pit entry in Montreal. Now, just as a quick reminder to people who can't remember, Flavio offered Pat a hundred dollar bill and said, remember to fill her up next time. That must have been peak Flavio. What a great story that was. And finally, let's have this from Jerry Field. I want to know more about Pat's active ride Benetton in 1993. The car sounded too clever for its own good. Well, Jerry, that Benetton was indeed a very high-tech car. Yet somehow it only won one race that year in Portugal with Michael Schumacher. Well, folks, that's almost it for this week. Please remember to send in your thoughts and messages about Susie Wolf. Get in touch with me at Tom Clarkson F1 on Twitter. And please make sure you hit the follow button on your podcast app so you get all of our upcoming shows as soon as they're released. And one more thing. The latest episode of the F1 Nation podcast is out now. It's a Saudi Arabian Grand Prix debrief with Max Verstappen, Lando Norris, Gunter Steiner, and many more big F1 names. Search your podcast app for F1 Nation. Thanks so much for listening. F1 Beyond the Grid is produced by F1 and Audio Boom Studios.
0: Until next time, keep it flat out.